The rest of us uh, remaining in here this morning, you can turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 1. You can also find that passage printed in your bulletin. Uh, We're taking a few weeks at the end of the summer here to look at the book of Habakkuk. It's a very small book at the end of the Old Testament in the Minor Prophets. So uh, just over halfway through your Bible, before you get to the New Testament, you'll find a little section of Minor Prophets. Habakkuk is just three chapters, easy to skip over. But we're looking at it because it speaks to the question of how can God be good and all-powerful and yet there be so much evil in the world around us? That's a a common human question even amongst Christians. Um, Last week we saw that Habakkuk complained to God because God's people were not living like God's people and God, it appeared as though he wasn't doing anything about it. They were immoral and disobedient and it was maddening to Habakkuk. And maybe that's something that's really frustrating to you when Christians don't live like Christians, when our lives don't look any different than the rest of the world. It certainly got Habakkuk fired up. And so he complained to God. He said, where are you? Why aren't you doing something about this? You've been silent. And God answered him and said, oh Habakkuk, I am doing something. And if I told you, you wouldn't believe it. It's something so incredible. He said, I'm raising up an even more evil and wicked nation to come and punish my people and take them into captivity. The wicked Babylonians are going to come and capture Judah. Habakkuk does not like this response from God. And maybe we don't either. For God to use injustice to bring about his justice is really difficult for us to get our minds around. And Habakkuk complains about this very thing. How can God use a wicked nation to punish a less wicked nation? You know, it'd almost be like um, if you imagine a classroom uh, full of students. And let's say you have one kind of generally good student in that class... Uh, who does something minor. Let's say they're, they're writing notes uh, to a friend in class. I don't know if people still write notes. We wrote notes back in the day, but they get caught writing a note, which you're always worried. There's always a teacher that threatened to read the note if, they got, if you got caught passing notes, so be careful what you write down. Uh, but imagine that the teacher said, all right, to this generally good student who just got caught doing this one minor thing, all right, because of what you did, I'm going to put you over on the other side of the classroom next to that bad student that is always disrupting the class, always causing trouble, always making noise, distracting everyone, and you're just going to have to live out this semester stuck next to this bad student and just kind of deal with the consequences of being around them that's going to affect your entire semester, it's going to affect all of your learning. You would just think, whoa, 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 wait a minute. That sounds a little extreme. How is it okay to use a really bad student to punish the less bad student? If we zoom out, here's how this passage is going to hit us. It's going to wrestle with this question of how are we to live faithfully during hard times? Uh, When things don't make sense. On a global level, on a national level, in our family, in a relationship in our lives, with our health, with our finances. When things feel like they're falling apart and when we don't understand it, when we cannot control it, how can we live faithfully with God? That's the question of this text. Habakkuk beginning in chapter 1, verse 12, through chapter 2, verse 5. Beginning in verse 12, it says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong... Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? 
You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write this vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. The word of the Lord. Father, we do thank you for speaking to us through your word. And, and we beg that you would do that right now by your Holy Spirit. Uh, what we need most is to hear from you. That in hearing we might be transformed and made new. Uh, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, two headings that we're going to think about this passage under this morning. Uh, First, we're going to look at Habakkuk's complaint, and secondly, God's response. Happen to be the same two points from last week because of the pattern of this book. First, Habakkuk's complaint. This is what his complaint is How can you let this happen? All right, this situation makes no sense to Habakkuk. If you remember back to chapter 5 of verse 1 that we looked at last week, God told him, hey, you're not going to believe what I'm doing even if I told you. And that proved to be the case. Our passage shows us at least two ways in which Habakkuk is struggling with God's response to him of the Babylonians coming in to punish the evil amongst God's people. Here's the first part of his complaint. It's how can you let this happen if you are who you say you are? He's appealing to God's character. Look at verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? He's saying, God, you're from everlasting. You're eternal and you're holy. And there's this cry of faith that we shall not die. The the last part of this verse, there's some question about how to translate it. But it appears as though it's, it's this cry of faith that's saying, based on God's character, on who he is, he's everlasting. That his people, if we have faith in him, will have eternal life in him as well. How else does he appeal to his character? Look at, down at verse 13, the next verse. He says, you who are of what? Of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? He's saying, God, you're pure. Your eyes are pure. You can't even look at wrong. You're so pure. Why do you then look idly at traitors and remain silent when the wicked is swallowing up those who are more righteous Listen to this quote from a commentator on this passage. He's saying, according to the experience and observation of the prophet, God is acting contrary to his character and is therefore in conflict with his own being. It's quite a claim. He says, how is that possible that a God of righteousness could replace one society with another that is even more idolatrous and evil? He's saying, Habakkuk is saying, God is acting contrary to who he really is. Um, years ago, back when I was working in college ministry, I remember at the end of, 
uh, one semester, um, we had just had our last meeting with students the night before, and I was exhausted from the whole semester, and I just want to go on like, uh, like a head-clearing, nice, easy run. So I kind of took a slower morning and go out on this run all by myself, and I was just kind of at the end of myself, really looking forward to this alone time outside, fresh air. And I was running through the neighborhood, and I looked ahead, and there was a woman walking towards me on the sidewalk, walking her dog, which is you know, very common. The dog was small to mid-sized, and it was a really cute, sweet-looking dog. Looked very well-behaved um, on the leash as this woman was walking it. And as we got closer, as I kind of would normally do, um, I, I kind of jumped into the grass that was in between the sidewalk and the road just to give her and the dog a little bit more space on the sidewalk so she didn't have to move. And, and I did sort of my customary um, kind of awkward head nod, hello to her. And right as I was like going right past her, this sweet, um, well-behaved dog lunged at me and bit me right in the side of my leg. And up to this point, I had never been bitten by a dog while running. I'd been chased multiple times, never bitten. And I was shocked. I was in shock. I just stood there looking at my leg and looking at this dog and then looking up at the woman um, because it, it seemed so out of character. This dog was so well-behaved, was so sweet-looking, so normal-looking. I, I didn't have words. And I looked at the woman, and she was shocked. And she instantly started panicking. She said, oh, my goodness, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. He's never done this before. This is so unlike him. I'm so sorry. And we just sort of stood there, like, looking at each other and looking at my leg and looking at the dog. And we really didn't know what to do. Thankfully, it didn't break the skin, but there, I definitely had the full circle of, like, teeth marks on my leg. But we just didn't know what to do, and I just looked at my leg. I wasn't bleeding. I just really wanted to go on a run. And so I went on ahead on the run. What made this so shocking for both of us was that it seemed so out of place, so out of character for this dog to bite. And it can really throw us off when people act out of character. It's very disorienting when someone does something or acts in a way that does not fit with the character that you had assigned to them. This is how Habakkuk is thinking about God right now. He's saying, God, this seems so unlike you. I don't understand it, especially in light of who I thought you were. That's the first part of his complaint. Here's the second part of his complaint. It's how can you let this happen, especially by someone so evil? He's saying again, how can you use the wicked to do your bidding? Look down at verse 14. He's referring to the Babylonians here. He says, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. And then in verse 15, he personifies the Babylonians as a person. He says, he brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad... Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? He's saying these Babylonians are so wicked. They're acting like animals. They're dragging captives around by hooks. Which was actually a practice during this time. That if you were to take a country captive. That you would put a hook either through their nose or through their lip. And lead them along in that way into captivity. And he's saying that God's people are like these fish caught in a net. And the evil Babylonians, they keep filling their nets. And God, is this just going to keep happening over and over and over again? He's saying, why, God? These people were terrible. Last week he complained about God not doing anything. This week he's complaining about what God is doing. Um, it's not uncommon in my house for uh, some of my children, maybe all of my children, to complain about being hungry. 
even within minutes of having just eaten an entire meal, they will stand up, walk around, and say, I'm hungry. That's the first complaint. And so then we will offer them a couple different options of healthier snacks that they could eat to help with their problem of being hungry. Hey, you guys could have some fruit. There's some fruit in there. You know, there's some leftover vegetables from dinner. You could eat some more vegetables. And then after that first complaint comes a second complaint. Well, I don't want those things. It starts with this complaint about not having food, about being hungry. And now uh, when they're offered something, they don't like what they're offered. Um, Habakkuk uh, thought that God wasn't doing anything, so he complained. And then when God explains what he's doing, he doesn't like it. So he complains again. Why this complaint? Because he cannot understand what God is doing. How do you do when you can't fully understand what's going on? Are you okay not knowing in life? Um, sometimes our desire is, is to know is based more on just honest curiosity where we just really want to know why something is the way it is. That's especially true with children who just relentlessly ask questions about everything. Uh, just last week I was walking around the block with my youngest daughter and um, as we were on kind of the, the back side of our block there was this man outside, uh, a neighbor behind us I did not know. I said hello. He said hello back. And as we were still within earshot of this man, uh, my youngest daughter said, Hey, Dad, do you know that guy? Do you know that guy's name? And I didn't know his name. And so it created this wonderfully awkward moment between me and this guy. We're like, hey, yeah, kids, you know. Um, but she was just honestly curious, like, does Dad really know this guy? Does Dad know his name? Because they're talking to each other like they should know each other's names. Sometimes our desire to know is just honest curiosity. Um, sometimes, though, our desire to know is, is because knowing feels like controlling. So if we don't know something, it can feel like we're out of control and, and we, can't, um, we can't be in control unless we know. And you can see this play out in human relationships and organizations, but also, as you might imagine, in how we relate to God. If we zoom out for a moment, um, one of the primary ways our sin attacks us is to tempt us to try to be our own God. Rather than letting God be God, we try to become God. Rather than God at the center, we put ourselves at the center where we think we know better than him. We think we know better as to how we should handle our sexuality. Um, We think we know better as to how we should handle our money, how we should handle our words, um, what ethics really apply and don't apply in our job. Um, Our sin causes us to think that we know better than than God does, so we do things our way rather than his way. And so we are chronically tempted to control things for stuff to happen on our terms in our time. And in, in our context that we live, if you have just a little means, just not a lot of means, even just a little means, it can feel like you have a lot of control over your life. Where you live, what you do for your job, who you marry, how you raise your kids, how your kids turn out, where they go to school... Where you travel, how you spend your time, who you spend your time with, how to get the best health care to take care of yourself. Um, If we're not careful, we can start believing the lie that we control our lives. And that affects our relationship with God because we're going to start to think that we can control Him. Where God becomes a sort of nice addition to our already great life. Or God can become like an accelerator, like a booster to us achieving our personal goals and plans in life. But then something catastrophic can happen that we don't control and we experience this crisis of faith or just a complete meltdown. What if God brings something into our lives that we don't understand? 
And he forces us into a position where we have to reckon with the fact that we're not in control. Is your faith prepared for that? Habakkuk could not grasp how a good God could operate the way he was operating by bringing these Babylonians in to punish the disobedience of God's people. This is his complaint. How can you let this happen? And this whole passage, this whole book up to this point is building to chapter 2 verse 1 where Habakkuk says, quote, I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Remember last week we said that Habakkuk was coming to God with honesty and with boldness. Here he is again. He's coming to God. He's not running from God with his questions. He's praying boldly. Now he's standing and waiting to hear God's response. What is God's response? Second heading. God's response is trust me. Trust me. In verse 2, he gives a vision to Habakkuk. He tells him to write it down. The thought here is that so that a messenger could run and deliver this message to others. How was Habakkuk to trust God? How are we to trust God? This is the first part of what he says. God says, trust me with my ways. Trust me with my ways. What's the vision he's giving Habakkuk? Look at verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. He's telling Habakkuk that the Babylonians are not going to get away with their injustice. That just because he's using them to execute his justice on his own people does not mean that they will get away with their injustice. And history would prove this to be true. The Babylonians would invade Judah in 586 B.C. But not long after 539 B.C., God would punish the Babylonians. That it would, in fact, come to pass. And even just after our passage, the rest of chapter 2 contains what's called these five woes to the Babylonians. Five ways in which they are particularly evil. Five ways in in which they deserve this coming judgment from the Lord that he would execute. And again, what do we see God doing here? He's pulling back the curtain, telling Habakkuk things that he was not required to tell him, that Habakkuk asked about, so he obliges him and responds and tells him more of what he's doing. But if you see this, as God is responding, he is pushing back against Habakkuk's complaint He's acting out of accord with his character. Because when he pulls back the curtain on his plans, what does it reveal? That God is perfectly just. That his character is perfectly consistent. That there's not some other plan at work. That God does not have like some cruel side that's at work behind the scenes. God is actually being good to his people and good to Habakkuk here. In your life, do you believe that God is always being good to you? That he's never not being good to you. Uh, Romans 8.28 says that, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Do you believe that? Even in hard times, do you believe that? Um, It's true even when we don't feel like it. And in this life, there will be lots of times when we don't feel like it. Um, In those times, that's where God calls us to trust him. A woman named Paige Benton Brown wrote an article years ago on singleness, um, which I highly recommend if you just Google singleness, Paige Benton Brown, you can find it online. She married later in life, but she was often asked uh, about her singleness, and so she wrote this article. And in this article, she wrestles with this idea of trusting God, um, being good with her in the midst of her singleness, because sort of the implicit thinking was that um, the sign that God is good to me is that I'll meet someone and get married. 
And, and, and some of that is, can sort of be baked into kind of Christian subculture. And, and so she, she addresses that very idea in her article on singleness. And she says this, quote, It is a cosmic impossibility for God to shortchange any of his children. Can God be any less good to me on the average Tuesday morning than he was on that monumental Friday afternoon when he hung on a cross in my place? The answer is a resounding no. God will not be less good to me because God cannot be less good to me. She says, I may meet someone and walk down the aisle in the next couple years because God is so good to me. She says, I may never have another date and die an old maid at 93 because God is so good to me. Are you able to have this kind of faith in the hard times that you're facing? Can you really trust that God is being good to you no matter what, that because of who he is, it's actually impossible for him to not be good to you? We trust him with his ways, even when we don't understand them. How else do we trust him? He says, trust me with my timing. This is where it really gets challenging for us, uh, where it confronts our temptations to be, to be all-knowing, uh, to be controlling. Um, and look again at verse 3. And we're back. Thanks, guys. Look again at verse 3. He says, if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. He tells Habakkuk to trust him with the timing. So, so what's Habakkuk to do? Habakkuk is to wait. He's to wait. And waiting is really difficult. What does it mean to wait on the Lord? What are we waiting on? Um, Tim Keller, when preaching on this very passage, this is what he said about waiting on the Lord. He said, you're not waiting on the Lord's answer. You're not waiting on the Lord's rewards. You are waiting on the Lord. He says, when you get started with God, you're going to do it to get something. You're unhappy. You're looking for forgiveness. You're looking for things. He says, that's okay, but it better not stay there. What does it mean to wait on the Lord? It means to love him for who he is in himself. And that means to be faithful to him even when you're getting nothing out of it at all. And it's only in times of trouble that you have an opportunity to turn your self-interested, exploitative relationship with God into real love. Waiting on the Lord is about loving God for who he is, not for what he might give you. So how do we wait? Look at verse 4. It says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. The first part of this and even uh, the following verse 5, it's referring to the Babylonians, their pride, they're puffed up. They're thinking they're all powerful, they're in control, they're all knowing, they're unstoppable. They made idols of their military power. And he says the second half of verse 4, God says it's different for the righteous though. They live differently. How do the righteous live? The righteous live by faith. You can wait because you are waiting by faith. In what? In God's promises to become a reality. God told Habakkuk, I'm going to take care of the Babylonians. I know you're in hard times. You're going to be in hard times for a while. But I've got you. I've got you. You're just going to have to wait on me in faith during these hard times. That's his answer. Here's what one commentator says about God's answer to Habakkuk. He says, it's a strange answer given to Habakkuk. The why questions of Habakkuk are not answered in a simple and direct way. Instead, the people of Judah are encouraged 
to remain faithful to God by putting their trust in Him. It is by doing so that they will live and eventually overcome their hardship. That is what they need to know. The issue at stake is not how God governs world affairs. It is how believers react in difficult times. What we need in our hard times is not more information from God, but deeper trust in God. To wait on Him. To keep the faith. To stay near to Him, even during hard times. Can you keep the faith during hard times? That's God's response to Habakkuk's dilemma. I'm not going to tell you everything. You're certainly not going to understand everything, but you've got to trust me. Keep the faith. Live by faith. And the Apostle Paul takes Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, and he quotes it two times in the New Testament. One is in Romans chapter 1, where he says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The other time Paul quotes is Galatians 3 verse 11. He says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Paul applies Habakkuk's words, these words in Habakkuk, to our salvation. He's saying that you have to trust God with everything, even your salvation. It's not about your own doing. You can't control your salvation. You have to trust God with that as well. He's saying that we can't control things by our knowing. We can't control things by our doing. It's all from faith. We live by it. We're saved through it. Um, do you see the massive amount of trust that God is calling us to? He's saying, my ways are not your ways. You cannot comprehend how I work. He's saying, you do not have the knowledge or the ability to save yourself. Your sin is too bad. You can't know it all. You can't do it all. So what? So you're going to have to trust me. You're going to have to live by faith. That means you're going to have to get comfortable being out of control and trusting me. And so the question that we have to grapple with is, can we live by faith like that? Uh, Can you trust God with your children's future? Can you trust God with your finances? Can you trust God with your own future, with your job, with with school? Can you hold it with open hands, not knowing uh, what might be around the corner? About eight or nine years ago, my wife and I were given tickets um, to go and hear the poet and author Wendell Berry speak. Berry is currently, I believe, 89 years old. So when we heard him speak, I guess he was you know, right around age 80. And um, during this Q&A session, he made this passing remark. Um, and by the way, Barry has been, if, if you're not familiar with his, with his writing, he's been published a ton and won a ton of awards, literary awards. He, he's, he's just a massive deal in American writing. And during this Q&A session, after he spoke, he made this passing remark to a question that was asked, referring to, to the craft of writing and poetry. And he said, age 80, I still consider myself young to the craft. All right, if there's any author who is not young to the craft of writing by any standard, it's Wendell Berry. Yet he lives by this mentality that, that he doesn't know it all, that he hasn't arrived, that he still hasn't figured it all out yet. And there's so much wisdom there. Um, it can be a real danger thinking that we know it all or that we understand it all or that if we just knew it all or if we just understood it all, um, then we can arrive. There's a danger in thinking we figured it out, especially when it comes to knowing God. You know, it's actually a relief to repent of this desire to know everything and control everything. 
It can be so exhausting. You can actually give all that up and, and trust God. That's freedom. Not having to know, not having to understand everything. And do you know what makes this possible? Do you know why it's guaranteed to be a good outcome to trust God? Because He is good. How do we know? Uh, because of the very gospel that the Apostle Paul applied, chapter 2, verse 4 to. What promise of God is Paul telling us to put our faith in? It's the promise that Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. That he died the death that we deserve to die after having lived the life that we were supposed to live. That he alone is our salvation. And that we can only know God and ourselves and our world in the way we were intended to when we put our faith in him. Um, The proof that God really is good and really is trustworthy is the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this is the invitation this morning. To trust God. To trust him with his ways, even when you don't understand him. To trust him with his timing, even when it does not match up with your timing. To keep the faith. To keep the faith, to keep trusting. And in the words of this passage, if it seems slow, wait for it. Wait for it. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that your ways are not our ways. And that you are a God who is beyond our comprehension. And Father, forgive us for when we reverse that. And think that we should be the ones calling the shots. And that that we should know all things and control all things. And be able to understand everything about you. Uh, We just fall down on our faces before you and worship you. Because we can't. And in the meantime, we wait for you. And we wait for you because we want more of you. Because we believe that you're good. And we really do love you, Father. And we pray that you would stir in our hearts, that you would grow our affections for you this morning, that would empower us to wait more faithfully. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.